I'm late. Sorry, I'm late. I'm having too much of a good baptism conversation down there. Sorry. Oh, how's everybody? I'm tired now. I ran all the way up the stairs. That's a long ways for someone like me. <clears throat> yeah, I ran 11 miles on Friday. How about that? Huh? My hip hurts and my knees hurt. My mind hurts because it's all about... Never mind. I'm not talking about that. Um, I get so distracted here today. So, good morning. Glad you're here. Uh, we're going to talk about Jesus today. Good. That's why you came, right? That's why I'm here. So let's talk about Jesus together. Uh, I wonder, uh, I, I just, I started thinking about this. We're talking about this whole series. Our series right now is called Like Jesus. And I started to think about it. You know, if Jesus had a Facebook page, how many likes would he get? I mean, that's interesting, right? I think well, some of you have a Facebook page. Why do you post things on there? Just to see how many people like you. That's all you do. That's, it's all narcissistic, you know. It's all about me. And so I wonder if Jesus had a Facebook page, how many likes would he have on there? And then I found someone that actually looked it up after last night, one of our gatherings. They said 5.9 million. Okay, it's, it's, I don't know, it's right out there. So Jesus Christ has his own Facebook page. I don't know. So I, I, I thought it would have been more. I thought it would have been more than 5.9 million because it seems to me like everybody likes Jesus. Not everybody likes everything that has been done in the name of Jesus. But everybody seems to like Jesus now, looking back 2,000 years later. And that's just interesting to me. We have this pursuit. We like Jesus here at Lakeside Church, but we have this pursuit that says we want to become like Jesus. It's not just about liking him. It's not even really just about loving him, although that's what we are, we are called to, of course, and we do. But we want to be like him. We want to become like him. And, and the question we're asking this month in our time together is how does that happen? How do we become like Jesus? How do you get to become like Jesus? How do I get to become like Jesus? And there are things in the scripture that describe that, that lay that out for us, and that's what we're talking about these days. So I want to talk about Jesus from the scripture. So if you have your Bible, why don't you turn to uh, Matthew chapter 14. We're going to read one of the most familiar stories, or one of the more, more familiar stories in the Gospels about Jesus, and I'll describe it for you in a little bit, but let's just read it. If you don't have a copy of the Bible, we have copies of scripture there on your chair and so or the chair near you so you can reach over and grab one you can take that one home if you don't have a copy of the bible you can read the bible on your smartphone or your tablet computer or you can pull out your desktop computer here if you want to if, if it's got the bible on it go ahead knock yourself out so but let's just read this to, uh, together let me read for you uh, john chapter 14 verse no 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 sorry sorry there was a heading that said john i got distracted matthew i ran up here i'm out of breath and my mind's not working Matthew 14, starting at verse 13. Good? Here's the story. When Jesus heard what had happened, he withdrew by a boat privately to a solitary place. Hearing of this, the crowds followed him on foot from the towns. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them and healed their sick. As evening approached, the disciples came to him and said, this is a remote place, and it's already getting late. Send the crowds away so they can go to the villages and buy themselves some food. Jesus replied, they don't need to go away. You give them something to eat. Well, we have here only five loaves of bread and two fish, they answered. Bring them here to me, he said. And he directed the people to sit down on the grass. Taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then he gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the people. 
They all ate and were satisfied, and the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. The number of those who ate was about 5,000 men besides women and children. You ever heard that one? Pretty well-known story, right? Do you know that that story shows up in all four of the Gospels? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They all tell that story. And do you know there's only 11 events in the life of Jesus that actually make it into all four Gospels? There's some really important things that some of the Gospel writers didn't write about. Like, let, let's take that little, that little Christmas story, that little thing about Jesus being born in Bethlehem. and that whole, How many Gospels does that show up in? Two. Mark leaves it out completely. John tells a little thing about the incarnation in real theological terms, but he doesn't tell us about the birth of Christ. Only two Gospels. The story of the Good Samaritan. How many times does that show up? One. The prodigal son. One. But the feeding of 5,000 men plus women and children shows up in all four Gospels. It's like there's something in this story that Jesus wants us to get. And yet it's not one of the stories we land on. It's not one of... If you were writing a Gospel, if you like the fifth Gospel writer... You know, would you have included this story in? Or would, you, would there be other things you go, oh, this is more important. All four gospel writers include it. Now, they all bring a different perspective to the story. As you can imagine, if you have four people witness something that happens, they will all, if they all tell the story, they will all tell it slightly differently. They will all have a little bit different perspective on it. And that's what happens with the four writers of the gospel accounts. They've got a different perspective. So Matthew, when he writes this story in Matthew chapter 14, he sets it up so that it comes right after the beheading of John the Baptist. Now today, if you're like, if you're like where I am in the events on the news today, you are hypersensitive to beheadings. And you know the overwhelming emotional tragedy of those things and the terror of those things and john the baptist the forerunner to jesus was beheaded and jesus said I, I, we're going to get away from here and and matthew tells that story now when mark tells the story he knows about john the baptist but that's not how he that's not the part of the account that he recounts to us it's not a part of the story that he tells to us he just says before jesus went off and we had this whole feeding of the five thousand thing what happened was jesus sent his disciples away on a mission trip he's like guys you've been with me for two years or so and we i've been teaching you how to preach and i've been teaching you how to heal people so you go out and do it and he sent them off in pairs around the region of galilee he goes you go preach you go heal people and get it done tell them about the kingdom of god coming in so they did and Luke tells the story in that same setup, except when he tells about the disciples being sent off to preach, he also mentions this little idea that they were sent out without any extra food. Which is ironic, because the next story he tells is of these disciples giving food to 5,000 people. And John, when he tells this story, he sets it in the setting. He says it comes in the season of the Passover. Passover was the, was the celebration of when God had rescued the people of Israel out of Egypt and took them across the Red Sea and out into the desert. And for 40 years while they're out in the desert, what did God give them for food? <laughs> Manna, right? Bread from heaven. Now Jesus is out there in the wilderness and he's giving bread from earth. And, it, and it's right during the Passover season. So every one of the gospel writers tells it from a little bit different perspective. Now let's just go back and rewind it and just let's play it out again and, and see how this story uh, 
kind of comes to life for us and, and what it means for us. Jesus is in a highly emotionally challenged condition when this story rolls out. Matthew tells us his cousin, John the Baptist, the forerunner, the prophet who had paved the way for the Messiah, that John the Baptist had just been beheaded. John's disciples come after that's over and they tell Jesus. When Jesus gets that news, he's alone because his disciples are out on a mission. So he's alone. He hears from John's disciples that John had been beheaded. Now Jesus has all this turmoil. And you might go, well, Jesus was never alone because he had the Father and he had the Holy Spirit. He was never alone. I'm like, okay, that's fine. But where were the people with skin on? Where were those where were those friends who'd been with him for two years or so by this point, and, and now they're gone on a mission? Where were the people that were going to hug him? So he's just in this emotionally charged place in his life. And then the disciples come back from their mission. They're so excited and so wound up. Jesus tells them in one account, he says, when you guys were out there preaching and healing people, he says, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. It was amazing. So you had this really high, high. You got this really terrible low. And Jesus is right smack in the middle of it. And I am sure that every one of you have been in that kind of a spot. Maybe not to those extremes, but to where you got something really great and something really horrible all at the same time. And Jesus is right in the middle of that. And when his disciples come back from their mission, they talk for a little while. Jesus says, hey, guys, let's just go get away. We just need some downtime. You ever need downtime? That's why I have a hammock. It's a beautiful invention. Because sometimes life wears you out. I mean, sometimes work wears you out. Sometimes people wear you out. Sometimes stress of, of choices in life wear you out. Sometimes your family wears you out. Sometimes you just got to get away. Sometimes you're just a walking Southwest commercial, right? Want to get away? It was just kind of how we are. Now Jesus gets his disciples back from this mission trip, and he goes, hey, you guys, let's get away. So they get in a boat, and they go across the Sea of Galilee to the other side. They're going to go to a remote spot. But the crowds that had been around Jesus on this side of the lake, they heard that he was going and they found out somehow where he was headed. And so they didn't have a boat. They ran around the edge of the shore and they run around to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. By the time Jesus gets there in a boat with his disciples for some getaway time, there's already a huge crowd on this shore and they're waiting for him. And I'm telling you, if it, if it had been me in the boat instead of Jesus, I would have been really, you know, likely to tell the captain of the boat, back up. Let's find another shore on the other side. Let's find another remote spot. But it says when Jesus got off the boat and he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them and he welcomed them. And in that, you see this remarkable, tender heart of Jesus. When at that moment, he, he could have said, hey, we need some time for us. He said, these people need us to give some time to them. And so he healed their sick and he taught them there in this remote section of the Sea of Galilee. 
Well, they go through that whole day, and it gets to be late in the day, and the disciples come back to Jesus. They've been kind of talking to the crowd and seeing what's going on, and they're kind of getting the tone of what's going on there in this big crowd scene. And, and after a while, late in the afternoon, the disciples come to Jesus, and they're a little bit nervous, kind of a little bit getting a little bit frantic. They're like, Jesus, Jesus, you better send them away. We've been out here all day. Nobody's had anything to eat. It's getting dark, and there's, if, we don't, if we don't do something, there's going to be a riot. So send them away to the towns and villages around here so they can get some food. Never mind, you're in a remote spot, and there are no towns and villages. Never mind that part. They just go, you got to send them away to get some food. And Jesus makes a remarkable statement. He says, they don't need to go away. You give them something to eat. You feed them. That's a really interesting little command from Jesus. Or maybe it's not a command. Maybe it's just like a directive. Maybe it's like instruction. Here's what I want you to do. You feed them. It's interesting because it's a command that we don't, we don't put a lot of stock into. We don't look at that command and go, hey, I wonder if that's for me. I wonder if that's a command for me. We got all the kinds of other commands in the Bible. We go, oh, that one's for me. I better do this one, you know. Love your neighbor. I better do that one. Love your wife. I better do that one. You know, love your enemy. I better do that one. We got all these things that we know that one's for us. But Jesus says to his disciples in this story, you feed them. And we sort of pass that one by because it's in the context of feeding 5,000 people. And you know you don't have enough resources to do that. And you could never multiply bread like that. And yet, what if that simple little command from Jesus, that little instructive statement from Jesus, what if that would be a catalyst to help us become like Jesus? Really simple, but catalytic in our lives to shape us, to transform us, to become like Jesus. You feed them, he says. Now the disciples are like, well, with what? He says, well, what do you have? They said, we have two and a half fish sandwiches. We got five loaves of flatbread and two fish. That works out to about two and a half. That's all we got. Jesus, we don't have very much here. Really limited resources. Jesus says, I'll tell you what, have the people sit down in groups of 50. We're going to have a miracle and we better get organized. I'm like, Jesus, you're about to make the miracle manageable? That's what I would do. I'm like, let's make it manageable. Let's make sure we got all the parameters. We got the chair set up. We got the ushers. We got everything. Let's make it manageable. Jesus goes, we're about to have a miracle here. We better make it manageable. We better get organized. Have everybody sit down in groups of 50. So they all sit down in groups of 50, and Jesus takes the bread and the fish, and he gives thanks to God for it, which is always, always an act of faith, especially when you don't have enough. Oh, God, thank you. We don't have enough. That's always an act of faith. And then he broke the bread. Like, does broken bread go farther? You don't have enough here, Jesus. Breaking it's not going to help. Does broken bread go farther? Does, does broken bread of life go farther? Do broken lives go farther? He breaks the bread and he gives that out to his disciples and they give it to the people that were there. And it says, everyone ate, which is amazing. And everyone was satisfied. What? 
All four gospel writers, they say everyone ate and everyone was satisfied, which means everybody had enough and everyone, and everyone thought it was good. That's just shocking. Have you ever been on Yelp? You know, Yelp, like the food, the food evaluation uh, app, right, the website. Uh, so they, you know, you go, on, you go on Yelp and there's all these um, reviews of the food and the ambiance and the service and everything. Have you ever been on a Yelp page that had more than one review where all the reviews were positive? No, the reviews are useless. Because you get one guy whom you don't know, and he's going, oh, this is fantastic. The food was great. The service was great. It was cheap. It was a wonderful restaurant. Beautiful experience. I'm coming back. And then the next guy right underneath his, like, this was horrible. The food was horrible. The service was horrible. I'm never coming back here again. You don't know who, you don't know who either of these people are, and you don't know whom to believe. Here's these gospel writers, and all four of them make this comment, and everyone ate and was satisfied. They had enough, and it was good. So it's so energizing to the crowd that was there that the gospel writer John, when he writes this story, he says people began to to whisper to one another about Jesus. This is the prophet we've been waiting for. Hey, you guys, this is the prophet we've been waiting for. For all these centuries, people have been waiting for the prophet to come, the Messiah to come. They're like, this is the prophet we've been waiting for. And Jesus has a little note in John's gospel. He goes, well, of course, I'm giving out free food. You're only following because I'm giving out free food. How many of you like free food? How many of you are not telling the truth yet? <laughs> we like free food. Everybody likes free food. If you go to, have you ever been to a River Cats game down at Rayleigh Field? There's this thing, I think every time I've been there, I'm not sure if they do it every game, but most of the times that I've been there, I can remember they have this thing called the K-Man. Do you know the K-Man? K is the notation in baseball for a strikeout. So they have this guy from the other team, and, the, and somebody designates him as the K-Man. And if the K-Man gets out and strikes out at any one of his at-bats during that game, everybody in the stadium is going to get a coupon for free appetizers at a restaurant you've never heard of. <laughs> and so K-Man gets up to bat, and the poor guys, everyone's rooting for him to strike out more than they would because they want their team to win. They, just, they want free food. I found, a, I found a tweet on Twitter about someone with the K-Man experience and how they wanted this free food. Let me, see th- Let me see this. Lala Key says, getting ready for our night of appetizers. We're going to hit as many places on the River Cats K-Man free appetizer list as we can. Hashtag free food. <laughs> how about this one? Here's another one I found. Not that, the next one. There. Here's a, anybody know Brent Rivera? I, I'm like, this guy must be the most famous beloved person in the world because here's his tweet always take advantage of free food when i tweet when i put stuff out there i'm, I'm like i'm trying to be fo- profound in 144 characters you know like, how do i make this really interesting so people will retweet it and you know really be inspired hey put that back up what happened no not that the other one no never mind oh they're good okay Don't toy with me. I'm sorry. That was my fault. So, but get this. Not the always take advantage of free food. Underneath that, retweet, retweets. 1,266 retweets. 
Why? Because everybody likes free food. Here's this guy giving life advice, always take advantage of free food. We're like, oh, I'm in. Matthew says 5,000 men enjoyed that food that day, plus women and children. I mean, that had to be at least 20,000 people. Mom, dad, two kids. Maybe they had 1.5 kids, which makes it more like, you know, 17,500. 5,000 men plus women and children enjoyed that food that day. And then when they got done, there were 12 basketfuls of food left over. One for every disciple who was there, who were all gladly sharing with Jesus because this is the coolest thing they've ever seen. In my life, I want to be like Jesus. But I don't have that kind of power. And I've come to realize that we have made leadership into something bigger than us. We made it into something beyond us. We made it about changing the world. And we've taken this title of leader and we treat it as if it's something that one day we're going to deserve. But to give it to ourselves right now means a level of arrogance or cockiness that we're not comfortable with. And I worry sometimes that we spend so much time celebrating amazing things that hardly anybody can do that we've convinced ourselves that those are the only things we're celebrating. And we start to devalue the things that we can do every day. And we start to take moments where we truly are a leader and we don't let ourselves take credit for it and we don't let ourselves feel good about it. And I've been lucky enough over the last 10 years to work with some amazing people who have helped me redefine leadership in a way that I think has made me happier. And with my short time today, I just want to share with you the one story that is probably most re responsible for that redefinition. I went to a school on a little school called Mount Allison University in Sackville, New Brunswick. And on my last day there, a girl came up to me and she said, I remember the first time that I met you. And then she told me a story that happened four years earlier. She said, on my day before I started university, I was in the hotel room with my mom and my dad, and I was so scared and so convinced that I couldn't do this, that I wasn't ready for university, that I just burst into tears. And my mom and my dad were amazing. They were like, look, we know you're scared, but let's just go tomorrow. Let's go to the first day, and if at any point you feel as if you can't do this, that's fine. Just tell us. We will take you home. We love you no matter what. And she said, so I went the next day, and I was standing in line getting ready for registration, and I looked around, and I just knew I couldn't do it. I knew I wasn't ready. I knew I had to quit. And she says, I made that decision, and as soon as I made it, there was this incredible feeling of peace that came over me. And I turned to my mom and my dad to tell them that we needed to go home. And just at that moment, you came out of the student union building wearing the stupidest hat I have ever seen in my life. <laughs> it was awesome. And you had a big sign uh, promoting Shiner M, which is Students Fighting Cystic Fibrosis, a charity I've worked with for years. And you had a bucket full of lollipops. And you were walking along, and you were handing the lollipops out to people in line and talking about Shinerama. And all of a sudden, you got to me, and you just stopped, and you stared. It was creepy. <laughs> this girl right here knows exactly what I'm talking about. And then you looked at the guy next to me, and you smiled, and you reached in your bucket, you pulled out a lollipop, and you held it out to him, and you said, you need to give a lollipop to the beautiful woman standing next to you. And she said, I have never seen anyone get more embarrassed faster in my life. He turned beet red, and he wouldn't even look at me. He just kind of held the lollipop out like this. And I felt so bad for this dude that I took the lollipop. And as soon as I did, you got this incredibly severe look on your face and you looked at my mom and my dad and you said, look at that, look at that. First day away from home and already she's taking candy from a stranger. <laughs> and she said, everybody lost it. 20 feet in every direction, everyone started to howl. And I know this is cheesy and I don't know why I'm telling you this. But in that moment when everyone was laughing, I knew that I shouldn't quit. I knew that I was where I was supposed to be and I knew that I was home. 
And I haven't spoken to you once in the four years since that day, but I heard that you were leaving. And I had to come up and tell you that you've been an incredibly important person in my life, and I'm going to miss you. Good luck. And she walks away, and I'm flattened. And she gets about six feet away, she turns around and smiles and goes, you should probably know this too. I'm still dating that guy four years later. <laughs> a year and a half after I moved to Toronto, I got an invitation to their wedding. Here's the kicker, I don't remember that. We sometimes think that it has to be big for it to count. And the only way it was possible for him not to remember that was because in his mind it was insignificant. But in somebody else's mind, it was almost a miracle. I wonder if sometimes we get so busy as Christ followers thinking we have to change the whole world that we give up on changing our little world. And instead of trying to love the whole world, we just try and love our neighbor. I wonder if Jesus would be interested in performing what I think of as ordinary miracles in us. If he would just take that little command that he gave to his disciples and follow that when he said, you feed them. We sometimes think, I I can't feed 5,000 people, so I can't be like Jesus. But, But put it here. Jesus fed people. Do you want to be like Jesus? Jesus fed people. You feed them. In Matthew 25, there's a story of Jesus... He tells this story himself. It's about him at the end of the age when everybody comes before the king of kings and lord of lords for, for the judgment time. And he, and he divides people up. He says, I'm going to put my faithful ones on my right and the, and the not faithful ones on the left. I'm going to call these the sheep and these the goats. He separates them out. And then he talks to the sheep and he says this. You know what? I'm, I'm so proud of you. I'm so glad you're here. And I'm so I'm pleased with what you did in this world because when I was hungry, you fed me. And when I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. And when I was sick, you visited me. When I was in prison, you visited me. And he goes down this whole list and the people on this side of the girl are like, well, we don't remember you ever being hungry and feeding you anything. We don't remember you ever being thirsty and giving you anything to drink. Jesus says, yeah, but when you did it for the very least of these, you did it to me. And it's fascinating, in that whole list that he runs down, he, he starts with feeding. When you fed them, it was like you fed me. There's some kind of miraculous power in feeding people. There's some kind of miraculous power in sharing food with somebody else. I want you to meet a friend of mine. Deb, come on up. This is Deb House. I want you to welcome Deb up, please. Good morning, Deb. Good morning. Thank you for being here today. Sure. Uh, Deb and her husband, Jim, have been Lakesiders for a long time. How, how long? 13 years. 13 years. And uh, you guys moved here to Folsom from a huge metropolis in Wyoming. Right. Uh, yeah. How many people in your town in Wyoming? 182. How many people in your neighborhood here in Folsom? Um, 
I don't know. 182, I counted. <laughs> oh, did you? Okay. <laughs> yeah. So tell us a little bit, Deb, about your journey and, and uh, in your neighborhood. Uh, you've been hearing us talk for the last couple of years about uh, this thing we call oikos, which is the Greek word for neighborhood or, or household or network. Just describe a little bit of your journey in your oikos. So about 12 years ago, we moved into our neighborhood, and we really desired to be in one of those neighborhoods where everybody just said hi and were friendly all the time. And we began with an ice cream social. We invited all the people in. And what really surprised us was that there were people who'd lived there for many years, but it was the first time they'd ever met each other. And the ice cream social, after the ice cream social, that was pretty much it. We were the neighborhood where everybody pulled in their garages and shut the door before they got out of the car. And a couple of years ago, started talking about this love your neighbor, love your neighborhood, oikos thing here at Lakeside. And we got to thinking that maybe that was something we were supposed to do. But we were very hesitant and very afraid and nervous about the whole thing because people weren't real friendly. So we thought what we'd do is it was a holiday of some sort, and so we filled some little bags with goodies, and we waited till it was dark, and we waited so nobody was around, and we went, and we went to everybody's house, and we left these little bags on their front step. So you do like stealth food drops. <clears throat> That's what we did, okay. yes. And then the next holiday came around, and we said, well... Lakeside has these little stickers we can smack on there. So we'll put the things together and we'll put the stickers on. And then we waited till it was dark and we <laughs> went around and we gave out the bags again. And then the next holiday came and we thought, you know, if they want to ask about Lakeside, who are they going to ask? They need to know who we are. So we put our names on them and we waited till it was dark. And, and, <laughs> <laughs> and you're still, you're like, just <clears throat> wait till it's dark and then leave it on the, on the step and then hit the road. <laughs> we did. Okay. And then finally, last year, about it was New Year's, and we said, let's have a New Year's Eve party and invite all of our neighbors, and we're going to actually go to the door and ring the doorbell and try to talk to them and build relationship. What a concept. Yes. Yeah. Yes, it took a while. But we did that, and um, we got all the way to the very last door, which was our next-door neighbor, and she, doesn't, she didn't like us, and, and we really don't know why, but, but she yelled at our son recently, and scared him half to death. He's an adult. And we just, <laughs> so it scared me. So I said, you go ahead and go to the door. I'm going home. So that's what happened. And then Jim came home and he said, well, are you ready to feel like a heel? And I said, why? Because I didn't go with you? No, because she's going through chemo because she has cancer. And so um, we felt like heels. And we decided we needed to do something. And so we started providing her meals. Her adult son had um, quit his job for the time being and moved in with her, and there were two of them. And so we started delivering meals. We found out which days were good for her, when she could eat, when she was feeling good. And the most miraculous thing was one day when I was backing out of my garage, and I looked up, and she was over in her driveway with a bunch of family members, and she waved me down. So I stopped and got out of the car, and... She took me into the house, and she introduced me to her whole family and um, said thank you and gave me some food in return. And um, that started our relationship. And then her son would come over to pick up the meals, and he, he would sit down, and we'd talk for hours. And so now we have a relationship with our next-door neighbor because we started taking meals over. Yeah. Do you think there's anything... You want to you clap for that? That's a good story, right? <laughs> Do you think there was anything miraculous about the things you were cooking for them? No. 
<laughs> ordinary food. Ordinary food, which God used to make what I would call an ordinary miracle. Correct. Yes. Yeah. That's awesome. Deb, thanks very much Thank for you. sharing your story with us. We sometimes think if I can't feed 5,000 people, I can't do what Jesus did. I can't be like Jesus. If I can't walk on water, I can't be like Jesus. I can't do what Jesus did. But he says, you know, I was hungry and you fed me. Or I wonder if he might say, I was going through chemo and you fed me. But you didn't even know they were going through chemo. Just like in the story we saw last week with Paul and Jesus tried to send Ananias there. And Ananias like, no, no, I've heard bad things about him. Jesus said, did I mention that he was praying? You don't know what's going on in their house. You don't know what's going on behind their rolled down garage door. And maybe Jesus isn't interested in multiplying bread anymore. He can. He could multiply all the bread and Rayleigh's if he wanted, all over the state. I mean, he could, but maybe he's not really all that interested in multiplying bread anymore. Maybe what he's really interested in today is multiplying disciples who will take those three words from Jesus very seriously, you feed them. This weekend, we're going to have about 2,000 people here at Lakeside Church from from Saturday night to Sunday morning. 2,000 people. I'm not very good at the math, but I think if every one of us were to serve two to three people, by the end of the week, we would serve 5,000 people. Not because Jesus multiplied bread, but because he multiplied disciples. Jesus said, when I go away, you will do greater things than these because I go to my Father. And I'm not sure that he's talking about amazing miracles, feeding 5,000 people type miracles. I'm thinking that he's saying, I'm going to build my church and the church is going to have the capacity to love their neighbor in ordinary ways. And if the church could engage that, we might change our world. Maybe Jesus isn't saying to us as individuals, I want you to become like Jesus, and I want you to become like Jesus, and I want you to become like Jesus. Maybe he's, you know, we always read the Bible very much from a Western individualistic perspective and go, I want to become like Jesus, and I do. But maybe he's not saying you as individuals become like Jesus. Maybe he's saying you, church, all of you together, Become like Jesus. You feed them. And see what happens in this world. What if every broken neighborhood would get healed because someone went across the street or next door and they said, here's some brownies. Thought you might like them. Brownies or bread? I mean, what if... What if that happened over and over and over in our neighborhoods? Could God take ordinary brownies from the hand of a disciple who is trying to be like Jesus, who goes to their neighbor and says, here, these are for you. Could God take that and multiply that to change a broken neighborhood? We thought maybe we'd give you some next steps to help with this this weekend. And so in your copy of Lakeside Life today, we put this little 
this little card. It, it, it says, like Jesus, five great ideas to feed your oikos. We, we just thought, you know what? Not everyone comes up with these great ideas. Not everyone's a baker or a cook or whatever. Not everyone knows really how to do this kind of thing. So we thought, we're just going to prime the pump and give you five ideas that you might be able to do with your neighbors and your neighborhood to love the people that are around you. And so you read through it. I'm particularly partial to ice cream sundaes, number five. Set up a table in your front yard and invite someone over Sunday afternoon for ice cream sundaes. I like it. What would happen if we took these ideas or you create your own and we said, Jesus, we're just going to follow that one little directive. You feed them. And in that way, as a church, maybe we would become like Jesus. Lord, I pray for us this morning for that goal that we would become like you. I know that you could do amazing, overwhelming, powerful things through us. And they'd be miracles and it would be fun and make the news and all kinds of things. But I wonder if your calling is on a lot lower key, a lot lower scale than that in us today. I don't know that those disciples ever again fed 5,000 people. And I don't know if we'll ever do that by ourselves, but I wonder if you would feed hungry people or neighborhood people or something through us. And I wonder if you would change our little world through us. And I pray that you would start that change in us. Because something has to change in us first before it changes in our neighbor. So Lord, you lead us on your path. You be honored through us. Fill us with your spirit so that we are shaped by you. And Lord, change the world one person at a time, one neighborhood at a time, one community at a time for your glory. Lord, we love you. We honor you together. Through Jesus, amen.